Hello, and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast in the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. Palm oil is a cheap, readily available vegetable oil, and it seems to be just about everywhere you look. You can find it in countless thousands of products, from soaps and cosmetics to foodstuffs. It's also used to manufacture biofuels for vehicles. Unfortunately, its production is also widely linked to human rights abuses and to deforestation and illegal logging of the ancestral lands of indigenous peoples, and in the habitats of endangered orangutans. I'm Paul Newman, AIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer, and today I'm joined by forest campaigner Siobhan Pierce to take a look at some of the problems with palm oil and to assess what progress, if any, is being made to address them. Siobhan, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Hi, Paul. Thanks a lot for the introduction and for having me today. My pleasure. Perhaps you could start us off with a general overview of palm oil. Um, where is it primarily produced and in what circumstances? So palm oil is mainly produced in two countries, and those are Indonesia and Malaysia, and they produce around 85% of the global supply. Palm oil is also produced in a number of other countries in Asia, Africa, South America, but Indonesia and Malaysia remain the biggest producers. And the oil palm tree is originally native to actually to West Africa, but it began to commercially be grown elsewhere. Uh, really demand started boom for it in the 1990s. The palm oil tree has orangey red fruits. If you probably haven't particularly seen it uh, living in the UK, uh, it is a sort of palm tree. It has big orangey red fruits. And from those is extracted palm oil, actually two types of palm oil. You can get from it fruits palm oil itself from the flesh of the fruits and then palm kernel oil from the seed of the fruits. So as I said, uh, demand for this palm oil really started to soar in the 1990s. It began to replace uh, other substances or other oils, uh, either as those were deemed to be high fat or because they were actual animal products and there was a trend to replace animal products with more plant-based products. So it's part of the reason uh, demand for palm oils began to boom and also palm oil was relatively cheap compared to these other products. So today it's a huge industry. Uh, there's about 75 million tonnes of palm oil produced globally a year. Uh, it's one of the biggest vegetable oils produced in the world in comparison Olive oil, for example, we've got about 3 million tons of palm, um, olive oil produced a year. So as you've mentioned, it's, it's everywhere you look. About 50% of palm uh, of products in the supermarket contain palm oil, and that might be in, in food. And it's often named as an ingredient in food products. But you also see it in a lot of other products like cosmetics and shampoos, soaps, washing detergents. And you might not notice it in those because even if you look at the... Uh, list of what those contains. It might be under a, a chemical or a scientific name as it might be a product that's derived from palm oil. So it's not so or, obvious. Or, or sometimes just vegetable oil. Just, or sometimes just vegetable oil. <laughs> yes. Although if it's in a food, you, you shouldn't see it just a vegetable oil now because there was regulation passed that made it so that it has to be listed out if it's in a food product. So you often see something in brackets that says like palm, rape, sealed, and, you know, whatever other mixture of vegetables it's got in. So, yes. Um, and then, of course, we are seeing an increasing trend for it being used as a biofuel, and it, it can be mixed as well as uh, in with conventional fuels like diesel. 
So you'll see it then. And then a lot of companies on the high street use palm oil in their products. So you know whether that's your high street chemist or your fast food chain. Uh, so really everybody is using palm oil, whether they realize that or not. And because of that, we saw a uh, real demand, as I said, for palm oil booming uh, in the 1990s and into the 2000s. It, palm oil production basically doubled um, from 1995 to 2005 and then doubled once again up to around 2015. So it's a really huge industry. And this had massive consequences, this rapid demand for it. Uh, we had, as Paul, you've already mentioned some of these, uh, huge areas of rainforest, though, cut down to grow it. it as I said, it's a, a tropical plant, so we've had huge swathes of rainforest cut down, which are obviously home to iconic species like tigers, orangutans, etc. Um, they were logged and turned into palm oil plantations. We often had land that communities, particularly indigenous communities, had lived on for generations being taken over without them having any say-so in that. We've had poor labor practices appear, uh, you know, ranging from extremes of forced labor and child labor to uh, perhaps lesser extremes, but of course, no less important, you know, low rages, uh, poor health and safety, etc. And then the other thing we've seen in the palm oil industry is all too often companies are actually operating outside the law in different ways. But one of the key ones is they didn't necessarily get all the legal permits or any of them, in fact, and uh, also corruption in the industry. So things like bribing officials to get the required permits. That sounds like there's a lot of problems involved in the production of palm oil, <clears throat> which rather begs the question as to why we're still using it. Um, has the palm oil industry improved um, since we've been monitoring it? Well, as we've heard, uh, palm oil is used in a lot of products. It's, it's very versatile, um, and that's because it's got really loads of useful pro uh, properties. That's Things like it stops chocolate from melting so much, makes your shampoo more moisturizing, your soap more foamy, uh, acts as a natural preservative. So, so lots of use of products to name just a few there. And you also get a lot of oil produced per hectare of land relative to other oils. So it's about 3.7 um, tons of palm oil per hectare of land compared to for example, rapeseed oil, you only get about one ton from the same area. So uh, if we now switch to using, you know, other other products uh, that would replace palm oil, we'd have to be using a, a lot more land. And of course, we've got a glowing, growing well population. We have seen some companies take this approach notably Iceland, so the supermarket Iceland, for those of you who, who know Iceland in the UK, they made a pledge in 2018 to stop using palm oil in their, their, their own brand products. Uh, they actually found that quite hard and for some products they just removed their own brand logo from them. Uh, they replaced mainly uh, palm oil with things like rapeseed oil and, and butter and sunflower oil, but based on what we've I've just said about, you know, the amount of land rapeseed oil takes up compared to palm oil. Obviously, we'd have to have a lot more land given over to rapeseed oil so we replace palm oil with rapeseed oil, for example. Uh, now, the other reason we continue, of course, uh, to use palm oil is it's also now uh, 
contributes to the livelihoods of millions of, of small scale farmers, often referred to smallholders in, in those countries where it is grown. It's a major part of Indonesia and Malaysia's economies, one of their biggest exports. So all, all these reasons are a reason why we're still seeing the use of palm oil, we could, well, we continue to use it. Now, there have been a lot, as we've outlined, issues in the sector, and there's been a lot of campaigning to raise awareness and get changed on these issues by, by us and other NGOs and, and, and others. And we have seen some improvements. And I think one of the first things we saw uh, is the initiation of different certification schemes. We saw the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil Certification Scheme established in 2008. And we also saw countries establish uh, certification schemes, both Indonesia and Malaysia, to address some of the impacts. We've seen companies uh, take on and establish commitments and sustainable policies on palm oil voluntarily because of the pressure to improve the industry. We've also seen governments implement various policies. Uh, I've got to talk a lot about Indonesia because that's a country we work a lot on and it's also the, the biggest producer of palm oil. So the government of Indonesia used several different policies to help improve the palm oil industry. Uh, it introduced um, a moratorium also in 2018 on not issuing any new permits for palm oil. That was just a three-year policy that has now ended. Uh, but we've also seen it establish a, a forest moratorium. So that aimed to protect Indonesia's remaining primary forests and peatlands and was, was made permanent a moratorium. But none of these policies are perfect and the industry is still far from perfect. Uh, sustainability commitments by companies are voluntary, so that means, of course, who's holding them to account on them, that's often themselves, uh, often not all, all industry players take up such commitments, as I say, they're voluntary. Uh, this has also been a problem with the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, it's a, it's a voluntary system, where we have had the, the governments have policies in place, like the forest moratorium the Indonesian government introduced. This hasn't actually protected existing forests in existing palm oil concessions that haven't been cleared. So um, there's lots of, I guess, caveats and, and issues still with those policies and programs that have been put into place. Yeah, a lot of devils lurking in the detail, I guess. Exactly, Paul. Well, if we can take deforestation specifically, which in this context we mean to be the intentional cutting down of trees and forests to clear land, um, palm oil production has long been viewed as a major cause of this kind of deforestation. Um, despite all the attempts to address it you've mentioned, is that still the case nowadays? Are we still seeing huge chunks of primal rainforest leveled to grow cash crops? Well, palm oil has been a big cause of deforestation, um, but it's certainly less than it was. And to date, this is where we have seen some positive action. So um, I think Indonesia this varies based on what the source is, if you're looking at official government data or other various studies that have been done. But roughly, Indonesia is not about 25 million hectares 
of forest in the last 20 years or so. That's an area, I think, roughly the size of the UK, so a huge area, and about a third of that is attributable to palm oil, or is thought to be caused by palm oil. But today, uh, it, it is much less. So at the moment, in the last couple of years, and it's only very recently, we still were seeing very high deforestations, last deforestation rates in India in Asia last decade. But uh, in the last couple of years, we have seen the deforestation really reduce. And at some estimates now, it's down to about 40,000 or between twenty to 40,000 hectares of deforestation for palm oil. And has this been, to some extent, due to the um, attempts the government has made to regulate itself with things like the forest moratorium and the new licenses moratorium? So, yes, to some extent, Paul, yes. I was just going to come on to that, yes. (laughs) So the reasons why we've seen this decrease uh, are debated, okay? So... I would say it would be a mixture of things. I mean, there's been a lot of debate about why why we are seeing this reduction. Now, we've got to remember, first of all, there's a lot of palm oil plantations already out there. So we've already seen a lot of deforestation. So we've got a lot of um, plantations all out there. And we have seen uh, efficiencies and greater production rates in those existing plantations. So that's sort of one minor point that you can make on, you know, why we haven't needed to see so much opening or clearing of new forests to make way for palm oil plantations. But yes, the reasons for this drop in deforestation were partly government policies. You mentioned, you know, we had a moratorium on new new palm oil permits. And although that has now expired, we're not seeing new concessions being handed out to the same extent that they used to be. So we haven't got um, new palm oil concessions coming on board. However, we've still, as I've said, got forest in existing palm oil plantations. You know, not all the concessions that were previously handed out have been cleared and planted for palm oil. So it's, you know, then a case of why haven't those areas been deforested? Now, it may be there's not demand and deforestation in the past have been strongly linked to the price of palm oil. So, you know, if you've got an increase in the price per tonne of palm oil, you've seen more deforestation. Um, but the other reasons are, you know, we have got signals from the government that it wants to decrease deforestation, even though its policies aren't perfect. Uh, we've got company commitments, of course, which we've talked about. Uh, a lot of companies committed to no deforestation policies. Um, not all of them, but starting from 2020. So they varied by company on, on when they started those policies and when they applied for. And we've also notably got things like better satellite monitoring. So now anybody from their desk anywhere in the world can track where deforestation is happening in pretty much real time and then, you know, respond to that. Uh, there's been a lot of work by NGOs, including ourselves, you know, of come contacting companies and campaigning against companies when we see that there's deforestation ongoing. So it's, I think it's really been a, a mixture of all those different things. Excellent. Uh, other than deforestation, um, what are the key issues still outstanding, <clears throat> excuse me, still outstanding in the palm oil sector and are they being addressed? Um, obviously, deforestation, as you mentioned, is was clearly a, a primary focus of concern and um, efforts have been made to bring that down. But I is, is this, are there still other issues that remain to be taken seriously? There are, unfortunately. Uh, 
as we've already talked about, we have seen that there's been a lot of different issues in the palm oil sector aside from deforestation on community conflicts, on illegalities, on, on labor issues, and those still remain in the industry. Um, some of those, as we already talked about, came about because perhaps the industry wasn't as, as well regulated as it could have been when it, when it was rapidly expanding. So we've still got those issues as well as, you know, still environmental issues like the degradation of peatlands and um, pollution issues and further social issues like how to ensure smallholders are, are paid fair price. That's that's small scale farmers. So I say though, while we've got some some uh, traction on the deforestation, a, a lot of the social issues, uh, there's some progress on them, but but less progress on them, and, and progress has has definitely been slower. Um, we've already mentioned a, a couple of things that the Indonesia government has brought in as uh, the moratoriums on, on, on making sure that primary forests are concerned, uh, conserved and also the moratorium on new palm oil permits. But we've also seen the trend from the Indonesian government of deregulation to make it easier for businesses to do business in Indonesia. So notably, we had the omnibus bill brought in by the Indonesia government, uh, and that was enacted in 2020, that changed 78 different laws in Indonesia, hence why it's called the omnibus bill, because it applied to so many different laws. And that removed a number of previously important safeguards, both environmental and social safeguards in the industry, um, notably allowed things like the government to convert forests for national strategic projects like its food estate that is where it's where it's seeking to increase its food production domestically um, and things like companies illegally um, operating in the forest estate or um, illegally operating without community consent while they used to be criminal offenses they've now changed to being having administrative sanctions as part of the omnibus law. So uh, several different changes, or a lot of different changes to various laws in Indonesia that have knock-on effects for the palm oil industry. Am I right in thinking um, that the omnibus law was brought in in part due to the impact or the anticipated impact of the COVID pandemic? Um, that there were, were major concerns to shore up their, yeah, their economic um, robustness, as it were, um, and, and to you know, look after their own you know, national industries. Yes, so that's one of the reasons it was passed through quickly and it, it was quickly passed into law was the COVID pandemic. Uh, there was a realisation that, you know, the COVID pandemic was having this effect and to try and attract more investment to Indonesia. And, and you, you mentioned earlier on um, the the roundtable um, for sustainable palm oil, or the RSPO, which is the world's leading certification scheme for supposedly guilt-free palm oil. Um, what's the, what's the story with them? Has it helped the palm industry uh, at all? Well, the RSPO, as I've ever mentioned, is a, a voluntary scheme, so it can only hold companies to account to a certain extent. You know, obviously, it can't criminalised companies or fine companies, etc. 
and our investigations have actually found that it has some pretty major flaws. Uh, we have found that the auditors, that's those assessing the companies against the RSPO's rules, have not picked up violations of those rules or even, in fact, um, worked with companies to cover up violations. So, in our opinion, it's, it's not really strong enough based on what we've seen and what we've investigated to be credible in making sure that palm oil that is certified under it applies to its rules. And this is very much outlined in our two watchmen reports. We've done two reports on this, both called uh, Who Watches the Watchman, one and two. And I, th I think uh, in that we've got a classic example of this where we have a company that is a member of the RSPO, uh, First Resources, and one of its subsidiaries hadn't got the consent from the community as it was required to do. Now, in the assessment by, as part of the RSPO process, uh, this consent was not mentioned. The community in question was not mentioned and it was said that it had consent, even though the assessors knew they didn't. So it was a complete omittance that there was this, this conflict with the community and the community haven't given their consent for the palm oil to operate there, which violated the RSPO's rules. Now we raised a complaint of this and it wasn't actually adequately addressed through that complaint, unfortunately. Um, when we came back to look at this in our second Watchman report, we found that the latest assessments didn't mention this community conflict that was still ongoing at all. Now that's despite it's being one of the most high profile conflicts in Indonesia at the time, um, there was no mention of the conflict and in fact I believe the audit report said they had found no mention in media or RSPO documents and bear in mind we had submitted an RSPO complaint on this so it was quite incredible that this hadn't been picked up and that particular subsidiary is now certified on the RSPO and the conflict is so ongoing. So that, that's an example of why we don't feel the RSPO has been well enough regulated through its auditors and, and other measures to make sure the companies that are certified under it abide actually by its rules. We also have issues with the RSPO's rules itself. The RSPO, for example, companies are not meant to clear forests under the standards, but there's a caveat or a loophole to that in that if you have clear forests, which may be uh, unintentional or intentional, or companies may have cleared forests before they join the RSPO, you can compensate for those forests that have been cleared. And that can be in various ways. It can be that you're required to plant new forests, but it can be that you've just got to pay for um, some restoration or an existing scheme that might exist. So it can be a bit misleading in that, you know, RSBO certified companies can have cleared forests. They might, they might be doing some restoration or helping to pay towards some restoration of forests somewhere else, but they've still cleared the forest in the first place. Uh, and there's also things like the, the RSBO operates a mass balance system as one of its 
systems, uh, which means that palm oil that is certified can be mixed with uncertified palm oil. And that uncertified palm oil can, come, of course, come from a plantation that doesn't have to apply to any of its rules. And we think that's quite misleading for the consumer because you can buy something which might have the RSPO logo on, it should say, it's mixed, but I don't think consumers often know what that means. So that makes us concerned that the RSPO certification is uh, greenwashing in terms of, you know, what we mean by that is it's misleading on the complaints, uh, claims it makes. Well, certainly, if you go to a supermarket and you see something is marked as um, yeah, sustainable, you expect it to be sustainable, not one element of it to be sustainable, and a lot, a lot more of it to not be. Exactly, and that probably takes us on to the question of what do we mean by sustainable palm oil? Which is a difficult segue. one. It's a difficult one to answer in some ways, although it's. Generally, what we mean by sustainable palm oil, and I think most people mean by sustainable palm oil, is it causes no environmental or social harm. Now, of course, um, different schemes, different companies, different countries' laws apply this in different ways. So there's not um, one size fits all as such. But that's, that's generally what we mean by sustainable palm oil. And I think consumers would expect that it, it doesn't cause you know environmental harms, whether that's pollution or whether that's cutting down primary rainforest, and it doesn't cause social harm, which by which we mean you know there's isn't conflict with local communities that you know is not causing poor labour practices that you know it's treating smallholders fairly, etc. Indeed, um, I, I suppose that leads us on naturally to to, to um, a good question to wrap up with, which is, do you think we're ever going to see properly sustainable palm oil, um, at least sustainable within the terms that we mean? It's possible. I, w- I wouldn't lose <laughs> hope yet. I, uh... <laughs> it's always good to end it on a sick note. <laughs> um, I mean, as we've seen for deforestation, that we have seen some some improvement there. That's not to say that you know it, it won't increase again uh, or so forth. And one of the kind of key things we've been campaigning for at EIA is for both producer and consumer countries to put in better laws and better enforce their existing laws, rather than just relying on on voluntary commitments and schemes. I, we've seen you know, things like the RSPO as a voluntary certification scheme and a lot of voluntary commitments for companies, but we we kind of feel they've gone as far as they maybe can do. And what we need is the whole industry as a whole to come up because of course they're voluntary, only some companies choose to adopt them. Um, and we've seen trends, for example, of companies that have adopted such commitments or become RSPO members. We've seen a trend of them selling off what we call their troublesome parts of their company or their troublesome subsidiaries and those might be um, those concessions that still have a lot of forest left so you know if they're abiding by their commitments they wouldn't be clearing the forest in those for palm oil or it might be those um, with ongoing conflicts or, or whatever the issue might be and we've definitely seen a trend of them being sold off to smaller or less scrupulous companies or even to shadow companies. And by shadow companies, we mean those companies 
that have obscure ownership, uh, but they may be linked in some way to another company by, by family or similar, being involved in their the management or otherwise, but it can't be proven um, who owns those companies. And often these smaller and shadow companies are registered in offshore jurisdictions. So it's not clear who's ultimately owns them. So they very much um, operate in shadows. And those are the companies that we're increasingly seeing, you know, doing doing the most harm. So what we'd really, you know, like to see is the whole industry as a whole bought, bought up to a higher sustainability standard for want of a better word. But, um, you know, the whole industry is getting there, but it, it takes time. And... Sorry, Paul, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was just going to ask um, in terms of the the various things that can be done above and beyond the RSPO. Um, I'm thinking in terms of stuff like the, the European Union deforestation regulation, uh, which I believe is in effect now, which is, is I believe the requirement is to um, bar products from the EU markets, which um, are connected to deforestation and the issues we've been talking about. Um, Certainly, from what I've seen in the media, um, in the governments of Indonesia and Malaysia have noticed it. Um, they, they seem to have um, begun working with each other as a way to try to address it. Um, do you think that's the kind of regulation that's going to have an impact? Is that going to make these countries sit up and take notice enough to actually put the sector into, into on, a, on a better standing? Well, we hope so. The EU deforestation regulation, as you, as you mentioned, has just uh, come into force this year and it will, will take effect at the end of next year. And it really builds on the successes we've seen under the EU timber regulation uh, that has been in place for a decade now that requires timber placed on the EU market to be legal. And that was something that EIA was instrumental in um, through its investigations, mainly again in Indonesia, uh, looking at illegalities in the timber sector. and bought in and campaigned for the EU timber regulation. So since then, we've really been campaigning for something similar that can address the challenges in the palm oil sector. And we have this new law, the EU deforestation regulation, that will mean that companies that place palm oil and other commodities, it's not, it's not just palm oil, I should mention that it also covers soy, beef, cocoa, coffee, and rubber. So companies that are placing these on the EU market will be required to do due diligence, so be required to look at their supply chains and ensure that the products that they are placing on the market are both legal and haven't caused deforestation after 2020. I'm assuming this is a mechanism to try to um, compel these countries to put their house in order. It is, it is. And it you know builds on, as we have heard about, those policies that have already uh, been brought into effect and, and those commitments that we've already seen from companies and the sector will be them a lot of the time voluntaries. Um, now the UK has also enacted through the Environment Act in 2021 similar due diligence regulation that will mean palm oil and other commodities uh, placed on the UK market also have to be ensured that they've been produced legally in the country of origin. So uh, obviously for palm oil, that will a lot of the time be Indonesia and Malaysia. 
And we're also, of course, been working a lot and we continue to work a lot with our partners in Indonesia, uh, notably come Telepak, on working there with the Indonesian government to improve legality in the palm oil sector through things like its own certification scheme. So the Indonesian Sustainable Palm Oil Standard, which is based on legality. So working also to improve those schemes at both ends. Uh, Siobhan, thank you very much for joining us today and um, the very best of luck to you and your fellow campaigners on this issue. Um, I hope you'll come back um, in the near future and give us an update on it. Yeah, well, we are excited to see uh, what, <laughs> what impact all these new regulations will have and that the industry will continue to improve. Excellent. Well, thank you again. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and do check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us and wherever you are, stay safe out there.